just can't stop. I'm a soul man. Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is just an extraordinary treat. Our guest uh, for today is Lou Marini. Lou is an incredible multi-instrumentalist. He's an arranger, a composer, an educator, a producer. His career, which is going great guns as we speak today, uh, is just incredible. The body of work uh, is, uh, I would say, Lou, unmatched. To many of us, we know Lou Marini as Blue Lou, a name given to him by the great Dan Aykroyd, going back to his time it, with the legendary Blues Brothers band, which was one hell of a band. And we're thrilled to get a chance to talk to you today. So welcome, Lou. Thank you. Thank you. You know, actually, uh, Aykroyd gave us the option to, uh, he told us we had to have a blues moniker and that if we didn't have one in mind, that he would be happy to supply one. And in, uh, in, uh, rather than have him give me some because he has a an unusual mind, let's put it that way. Uh, uh, rather than have him give me my moniker, I I uh, chose it. There was an old jazz tune called Blue Lou that my dad used to play for me. My dad was a a wonderful musician and and teacher, so I already it was sort of built in, you know, the Blues Brothers Blue Lou. But I remember the first gig that we played in Pine Knob, Michigan. When Belushi uh, went to introduce me, uh, the crowd, the sound of it uh, sounded like they were, at first we thought they were booing me. And my son was about 11 years old at the time, and he was on the stage, to the right of the stage. And I remember he had this stricken look like they're booing my dad, you know. But then it turned out to be they were blue looing, you know, and that has been a constant through the years, sort of funny. Oh, my gosh. What a, what a great, great story. So, Lou, before we got on air, you were talking about just coming back from a tribute uh, that you did up in Toronto at Massey Hall for the band and talked about a great, great story. The first time you played Massey Hall, a legendary, legendary venue across all genres of music up in that great city of Toronto. I I'd love to hear about last night, but I'd love to hear about that first story you told. I think it was back in 1971 when you were with Blood, Sweat and Tears. Yeah, we were, uh, I, I'm not clear on how I was delayed for the gig, but I wasn't traveling with the band. I think maybe I was doing a clinic or something and a flight got canceled and I had to take a later flight. So when I arrived in Toronto, I uh, went directly from the airport to Massey Hall. And uh, and then uh, I don't know why they didn't get, get me to a stage entrance, but maybe the but I was dropped off right in front of the, of the of the entrance to the hall. And so I ran down the center aisle with my horns and my luggage and threw them on stage and jumped, <laughs> climbed on stage. And and the band was already playing and got my horns out and joined the, the gig. That was the first time I played basketball. So it was memorable. And last night, a tribute to the band. Yeah, uh, it, it's a band called Mrs. Henry. And uh, they have been doing this band tribute and uh, apparently have gotten the the uh, approval of uh, the estate. I don't know if Levon, if it was just Levon or of, of, of something representing the whole entity of the band. But anyway, they have backing and there were over 2000 people there. And, and uh, man, we played so many tunes because they also included uh, people. It was called The Last Waltz. So there was a girl doing Joni Mitchell tune. Uh, uh, there was uh, uh, guys doing um, Van Morrison tunes, Bob Dylan tunes. So not just the tunes of the band, but people associated with the band and over the years. So it was a long concert. It was almost five hours, I think. Wow, it sounds like a, an epic night. Did they record it for air? Well, there were a lot of video cameras, so I don't think that they may have been streaming it. I, I wasn't clear on that, but anyway, it uh, it must be it must be down for posterity in some way. Well, Lou, there were so many places to start with you. Your career is just incredible, but I, I thought we might start as a member of the famed One O'Clock Lab Band, going back to uh, University of North Texas is sort of a not obvious place to start. Uh, and then you mentioned your dad. I'd love to talk about growing up. I know you grew up in a musical household, but can we start by talking about the One O'Clock Lab Band? 
Yeah, well, that was a, you know, the the great thing about North Texas at that time was not only was there uh, the opportunity to play in that wonderful jazz program, uh, but also there was a lot of work in Texas. Uh, I I think I went down in 63 or 64. And, uh, you know, uh, there was a funny thing that uh, that happened in the end of my freshman year. I had gone when I was 15 years old to the Stan Kenton Jazz Clinics. That was the first of the, now there's a lot of jazz clinics around the country, but that was the first of them. And they had a pro- professional faculty. And one of the clinicians was a great trumpet player named Don Jacoby. He was a famous trumpet player from uh, originally from Chicago. So I, I ended up, uh, you know, he gave a clinic and I thought it was the greatest clinic uh, ever. And, that 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 Stan Kenton Jazz Clinic. Uh, Keith Jarrett was there. Uh, my roommate was David Sanborn. David and I each other since we were fifteen. Uh, Randy Brecker was there. Uh, Peter Erskine, the great drummer, was there. There were tons of guys that I later played with were at that clinic. So four years later, I'm in in school in North Texas, and the end of my freshman year, I get a call to go sub in Dallas. Uh, the great tenor player named Joe Davis down there had been in a car accident. And uh, so he was out for, for weeks or whatever. And, uh, and Don Jacoby used to, and it turned out to be Don Jacoby's band. And so uh, I ended up working six nights a week with him at the end of my freshman year for about three years. And, and the other horn player was Bobby Butter Burgess, who had been the lead trombone player with, Maynard Ferguson with with Stan Kenton with Woody Herman's band. So at the same time that I was uh, playing in the one o'clock band and 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 getting that experience at at the University of North Texas, I was working six nights a week and playing a different act every two weeks and standing between these two legendary players. And that was uh, an amazing apprenticeship, you know, uh, playing with those guys, playing with the one o'clock beginning to write music for the one o'clock band, uh, lifelong associations with, uh, with guys like Ed Sof, the great drummer from the band and, and, um, uh, Jay Saunders, the trumpet player was in the band at that time, Billy Harper. Uh, so uh, yeah, it, it was a lucky, lucky choice. And the reason that I went to North Texas was because I heard the North Texas band, they had just won, uh, one of the big jazz festivals and they were the guest band at the San Kenton jazz camp. So, uh, it's all lucky chances coming together. And to this day, the high school uh, you went to fairless high school still awards, uh, an award in honor of your father, Lou Marini yeah. senior. Yeah. And my dad, uh, actually wrote the, uh, wrote the alma mater. Well, he wrote tons of music. Um, you know, there used to be, uh, we used to go to the state contest and we were a little school and we got superior ratings every year. One of the reasons was that my dad uh, started everybody. And so he was so good at that, at getting that initial progress with kids and following up uh, that even though we were, I mean, our high school, I think we only had like 120 people in the high school and, and 60 of them were in the band. So, uh, and he used to write a, you know, at state contest, you would have to play a march and then you would have to play a, a piece that was, that everyone had to play a more difficult piece. And then you had the option to choose a third piece from a list that they gave you. So we would start off with a march, but it would be a march that my dad had written an original march. And right away, the, the the judges were hearing a, a really good p- band playing something that, that they had never heard before, you know. So, uh, yeah, I was lucky. My dad was. Uh, and one thing that my dad did, which was very clever, is that once he saw that I was into it and that I was practicing and wanted to do it, then he had me study with one of his best friends a guy named Frank Corby, who was a natural jazz player and uh, one of my dad's best friends throughout his life. 
And so that removed that father and son stress that can happen when a father tries to teach his son something. So again, uh, another good choice uh, that my dad dropped on me, you know. Absolutely amazing. And I love that your son is carrying on that legacy today. Yeah, he sings and uh, and uh, he's and and my granddaughter, man, uh, her name is Elena. She writes and composes her own tunes, does everything on the iPad. Beautiful mixes, wonderful, uh, unusual music, and sings like a dream, man. She just sings fantastic. Amazing, that's fantastic. So you. Born in South Carolina, raised in Ohio, end up in college in Texas. At some point, you wind your way to New York. Talk about that decision to come to New York and uh, evolution of, you know, in the 70s, you know, what really became sort of the premier sidemen in the whole business. You know, when I was a kid in school in Ohio, I used to read The New Yorker. I've sort of since in my all my adult life, I've read The New Yorker and and uh, and when you're a kid and you're listening to jazz and you look at what happens in New York every week in the clubs, uh, that was a dream, you know, of coming to New York. And, and then uh, I was going through a divorce in Dallas and uh, I had a big band that was playing every Monday night at a club uh, called The Villager, I think. And uh, we were packing the place and, and we had a nice format. We would, we had three or four guys that were writing for the band. And so almost every week we would have new music and we never rehearsed. We would sight read the new charts in front of the audience. And if there was a breakdown or, you know, somebody would be yelling at somebody else. And I think the audience really felt invested in the music. And so they would hear a sight read something. And then we would usually play it again, the second set. And, uh, was very successful at the same time uh doc severinson had been coming down to dallas and uh, performing with a big band that was made up of uh, the studio guys in dallas so at which time i was one and uh, and good guys from north texas from the school so i was playing with doc he would always uh, i was always get hired for those gigs and uh one night after the the villager gig my best friend joe randazzo a great bass trombone player who has since left us uh i said man you know i was talking about going to new york and uh, i said for two cents i'd leave this town you know and he flipped a couple of pennies up on the dashboard and i was like you're right man i should just i should do it you know so i made the decision to go and i mentioned it to rich madison uh the great tuba euphonium bass trumpet player that used to play with the Dukes of Dixieland. He was a virtuoso player. And he had gone to the Charles Colin Jazz Conference in New York, a famous uh, yearly event, which featured uh, great brass players from all over the country, all over the world, really. And um, Rich told Doc that he heard that I was moving to New York. So Doc had just fired uh, a friend of mine named Rick Wald, a wonderful saxophone player and composer himself. Uh, and I got hired to play in Doc's traveling band before I even left Texas. So we played a gig before I left, and that was in Kansas City. And Lou Tobacken, a great tenor player, had just married Toshiko Akiyoshi, the Japanese pianist and composer, and her, had her own big band. And uh, he said, Lou, do you need a, a, an apartment? Because I'm subletting my apartment, you know. So before I left, I had a gig with Doc and, and an apartment. And then uh, I got to I got to New York and uh, was playing with Doc. I subbed some on The Tonight Show, and I went to hear Clark Terry's big band. And uh, I had done a clinic with Clark in Arkansas before I left uh, to move to New York, and Clark had liked one of my big band compositions. So I gave him a copy. And uh, they played it when I went down to hear Clark's big band and Dave Bargeron and Lou Soloff were playing in the band. So then they sounded me to audition for Blood, Sweat and Tears. 
So I think three months after I got to New York, I was already playing in Blood, Sweat, and Tears. So my entree to New York was pretty pretty smooth. And you're, what, 22, 23 years old at that time? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, that's amazing. Not everybody's journey is that smooth. Uh, what, what, a, what, what good fortune you had. The, the guy I replaced was Joe Henderson. Joe, Joe, I, I think Joe, I don't know. I never talked to him about it, but I'm not sure that he really wanted to be there that much in the first place. And, and, uh, and so when he, he left, uh, I think I was the first and turned out to be only guy that auditioned, you know? And, uh, I mean, they, um, I was a good fit for them. Um, and, and, you know, and, Lou Soloff and I, uh, at, at that point, we we became inseparable for uh, for a period of time, and and uh, you know, over the course of my career, I mean, Lou Soloff and I played who knows how many gigs together, a thousand gigs together, you know, probably, and we're in different bands together, and and uh, and we had from the very beginning, man, we were we would play things together out of the blue that uh, just exactly together. We would, we would phrase something that we had played a hundred times one way and some musical thing would happen in the rhythm section or some somewhere. And suddenly we would both play a, a note that we had played short 50 times uh, long. And then we would give each other this sidelong look and, would be like well, there there it is again and how does that happen you know it just happened all the time with us it's an incredible it really manifests that old principle of, that music and jazz in particular really do have a language all their own yeah yeah that's for sure there's a wonderful picture that steve katz uh, posted on facebook uh no it's been like 10 years ago now but it's Louie and I are on the roof of the building we used to rehearse in in Dobbs Ferry, uh, up just north of New York. And uh, we're both, we're holding our horns and the, the look as if we've just had our horns in our mouth and we are laughing. It's a beautiful photo, black and white photo of the two of us really cracking up, you know. And Louie uh, called me up and said, you got to see this photo. And, I, and when I checked it out, he said, I wonder what we were laughing about. And I said, I know what we were laughing about. We just played something exactly together and we were cracking up over it. That's got to be what that photo was about because we did it all the time. Mm, amazing stuff. So, Lou, you mentioned Doc Severinsen, but going back even further, if we dial the clock back a bit, icons like the Woody Herman Orchestra, Buddy Rich Band, uh idols of yours i'm sure growing up like thad jones and mel lewis that was all part of your early formative years too yeah uh i went on the road with woody and uh the the saxophone section was ronnie huber on baritone i just played at his memorial service uh and frank vicari lead saxophone and sal nistico the soloist and me and uh that was a learning experience and uh i was only on the band for about three months i was my son had just been born it probably led to my divorce actually my, my second wife but uh of my first wife i mean but uh it was it was great playing with woody and uh and i liked him you know um I've got a ton of stories about that time with him in that brief amount of time, but that's where I first met Ronnie and, and Sal. And, and then, uh, with buddy rich, uh, that was in the late seventies or early eighties. I think, um, Dean Pratt, who was playing on buddy's band suggested to buddy that, uh, that I was a good arranger and that he should try some of my charts. So, uh, I brought in a bunch of, new charts and buddy played them and he really liked them and uh, he told me he wanted me to arrange a whole album and 
And then that was on a Thursday night, and uh, and I was like, oh, this is great, you know. And then Monday, I get a call that, from Dean that said, uh, Buddy decided he doesn't like the charts after all, and uh, and he doesn't want to pay you for them, and uh, but he wants you to write some other stuff, you know. And, and uh, I should have taken the opportunity to write some other stuff, but I didn't, you know. I basically told him that I, I was passing on it. and But then subsequently... Uh, he called me to uh, to arrange when Jessica Lang was uh, in the movie King Kong, but he had a, a, a somebody had written a tune called Kong, and it had lyrics and and he wanted to do a big band version of this to capitalize on the popularity of the movie. So when I heard it, I told him I said, "Buddy, you should do this as a band vocal. You should sing the lead stuff." And we'll, the band will answer, and I'll write a modern hip chart on it, preserving the old big band thing of the way the bands used to do that. And he wouldn't do it. He he, he insisted on having Will Lee come in and play bass, and Steve Kahn played guitar, and and I think uh, Lonnie Groves, or he had uh, great singers come in to, to sing it, you know, and... I still think if he had done it my way, it, he, he he could have gotten some mileage out of it. But uh, so I did get the opportunity to write a chart for him. And then uh, my friend Alan Govan, who was playing lead uh, saxophone at, at the time, a couple of years ago, Alan says, you know, we used to play that uh, as a band instrumental, not as a vocal, just as a funk feature for Buddy. And he sent me a, a couple of recordings of it, live recordings, because he was recording everything. And man, they were killing it. And Steve, Steve, uh, oh, the the great saxophone player that played lead alto, um, uh, played uh, first tenor and soloed with him. What's his last name? I'm blanking on it. Uh, played a fantastic soprano solo on the recording that I have. So that made me happy to know that they actually did play it, and and uh, and that Buddy liked it. The funny thing too, like uh, you know, Buddy was so crusty and and. Uh, when we were doing the Blues Brothers movie, uh, this was after that opportunity that I had for Buddy to to play my charts, you know. So one night, uh, one weekend, we took advantage of a weekend at the Ritz-Carlton, and I rented a suite at the Ritz, and because uh, they had this fantastic Sunday brunch, and so I stepped out. Very dapper man. I was dressed to the nines to go to uh, Sunday brunch at the Ritz. And when I opened my door, the door beside me opened up and there's Buddy coming out of his suite. And he gave me a look like, what the hell is this kid saxophone player doing in a suite at the Ritz? You know, it was a funny, we ended up going down and having brunch together. I love that. All right, so you mentioned you gave us the headline, but you got to give us one Woody Herman story from your canon of Woody Herman stories. Well, uh, there was a few, you know. I remember one time uh, we were playing in in uh, Chicago, and at a, it was at a club. It was a private club that uh, was apparently a hangout for uh, judges and and lawyers, and. Uh, we're playing along and a woman comes up to Woody uh, and, you know, because of where I sat in the saxophone section, I was right behind Woody. So I heard the conversation and she beckoned to Woody and Woody leaned down and she said, you're not the real Woody Herman. I saw Woody Herman in 1952 and you're not Woody Herman, you know, and Woody turned his clarinet over and was holding it like a tomahawk, you know, with a bell down <laughs> and he said get the hell out of here lady and he and he uh waved the 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 clarinet like he was going to hit her in the head with it you know it was vintage woody herman she her eyes got real wide she backed away you know oh, the first gig that i one of the first nights was with uh, uh ronnie i was hanging out with ronnie it was in elitch's gardens in denver summertime outdoor gig and a lady comes up to Ronnie, and Ronnie's hair is long. He's got his band uniform on with his shirt unbuttoned to the to the middle of his chest, you know, and he's wearing a big medallion and 
And she comes up to him and she says, how come your hair so long? And Ronnie says, because you're not used to it. <laughs> oh, you know, we were, my, my uncle Ed and a couple of my cousins who were musicians came to hear us in uh, right outside of Pittsburgh at a, at a racetrack. And uh, so I introduced them to Woody and they're big fans of Woody Herman. They were so thrilled, you know, then we play the gig and the whole gig, Woody never calls uh, any tune that I have a solo on. So now we're playing the last tune of the night, which is Caldonia, blazingly fast. Sal Nestico is playing a solo that only someone like him could play at this up-tempo, just a fount of invention. And I see Woody look at me and I real and Woody is like, oh, I didn't give the kid a solo, you know. So then I had written an, an arrangement of a tune that we did at North Texas called Flashes for Woody. We had rehearsed it and it had a piccolo part in it. So I had my piccolo there and suddenly I see Woody go. He holds up his hands with like holding it as if he's playing the piccolo and he goes piccolo solo and. So now I'm playing a piccolo solo at the speed of light, you know, having just listened to Sal Nesico play like 10 choruses. And uh, I think the first chorus I probably did pretty good, but then it just began to seem absurd to me, you know, playing a piccolo solo, standing in a mic with, <laughs> and I, I think I totally folded, oh, you know. Nice. Uh, well, he, he tried to give you your moment, right? <laughs> yeah. Great stuff. So can we talk about your journey to the legendary Blues Brothers band and to SNL? I think Saturday Night Live, the first couple of shows, there was another saxophone player. Uh, and uh, he was a good player, but apparently he had uh, had some personality issues. Uh, and uh, also, I think there was some uh punctuality issues so they they had an open call for for saxophone players and uh, a few of my colleagues had gone in and and uh, and auditioned but you know I, I i remember when i went in to do it i just had this uh feeling that this was my gig and uh and i auditioned and it became my gig so uh that was a you know it the impact of the show at that time on the in uh, on the audiences in the United States was so heavy, week to week. You know, uh, Ackroyd or Belushi would do something, and uh, and Monday the whole country would be imitating them. And and Alan Rubin used to say to me, uh, "Where's the hippest place to be on planet Earth right now?" Right before I played the opening solo on on the theme, you know, and. It was just, it was, uh, it was fantastic. It was, and, you know, but at the same time, it, we, it was just a gig. It was another gig. You know, we didn't, we weren't thinking of uh, any long lasting cultural significance to it. It was something that we were, we were in a great band. It was, uh, and especially in the first few years, we were backing a lot of the guest artists that came on. It was before they started bringing their own bands with them. So, you know, you're playing for Joe Cocker, you're playing for uh, Peter Tosh and Nick Mick Jagger, and I got a solo with them. You know, those things were happening week to week, and the, the because it was live, it had that urgency and and stress factor that you only got one shot at it, so you have to be on top of it. And uh, it was a lot of fun, you know. And then the way the Blues Brothers started was that. Uh, Danny and John, I think they had been hanging out. John had befriended Doc Palmas, the sort of blues historian guy, and got really turned on to the blues and really into it. And so he and Danny had this idea about these two guys, the Blues Brothers. And uh, and we tried a tune uh, for Lorne, uh, and Lorne didn't like it. Lorne Michaels, uh, the director. And, uh, and then the following week, uh, we did a different tune, I think Tom Malone had arranged them both and uh, and didn't like that either. And and uh, so they were going to give up on the idea. And then uh, the show was short. 
uh, of material because uh, Lauren had canceled on one of the one of the skits, and uh, he went up to them and said, "Okay, if you guys want to go out and make fools of yourself, you're welcome to do it. We're we're short. Do one of your songs, you know." And then the response, you know, I wonder about that too. Uh, as uh, I've never been clear about it, but apparently. Uh, people must have been calling into NBC or whatever their local stations, but there was this tremendous response to that first appearance. And then we did it again. And then we didn't really think that much about it. Uh, it was just something fun that we did on the show. Then Belushi calls up and says, uh, you know, we're going to put this band together. We're going to go out and be opening act for Steve Martin for 10 nights at the universal amphitheater. And then, uh, so, again, we thought, well, this is going to be a good gig. It's paying great, and we'll go out there. We'll spend 10 nights. And uh, But when we started rehearsing, because of the popularity of Danny and John, uh, we quickly, quickly realized that there was something special and very particular about this combination of musicians. Uh, and people were coming by the studio, you know, famous people were coming by the rehearsal studio in New York to hear it. And their reaction was, was, uh, they were flipping out. And then when we got to LA, uh, we rehearsed and, uh, uh, we started playing and every night we were getting standing ovations. And I remember like the third or fourth night, and backstage, it was like showbiz central, you know, there's Dane DeVito, there's Bette Midler, there's Robert De Niro, there's, and and uh, I remember playing B movie boxcar blues and uh, looking out in the first row and seeing Jack Nicholson and catching his eye and he was wearing shades and he looked at me and he slowly lifted his shades and he went wow like that you know so right away you, you we knew we had something special you know and and then the next thing you know you're making a movie and then we do a tour and then Belushi's dead. And suddenly it's all over with, you know, it was like a, the whole thing was uh, such a whirlwind and the experience of making a movie and being fledgling actors and, uh, you know, it was it, it, looking back on it now, uh, it was such a unique and uh, uh, intense experience. Amazing. And Lou, people, I think generally, underappreciate the caliber of all the players in the band. This was a band of incredible musicians from top to bottom. Yeah, it really was. And, uh, and you know, the frisson, the, the little spark generated by the being guys coming from some such diverse, uh, I mean, Matt Murphy, Mississippi, poor upbringing, uh, total stone blues player that had played with all the blues greats and Duck and Steve uh, the whole uh, Stax Volt thing and they were the architects of it really I think the two of them more than anybody else uh, in Duck you know Duck invented bass lines that as uh, soon as people hear them they start dancing you know and, and Steve is a uh, uh, just a rhythm force you know he's a rhythm machine by himself and then Alan who had been groomed to be Vacchiano's successor in the New York Philharmonic and Tom and I products of North Texas and Zappa and Blood Sweat and Tears together and you know the horn players were a sight reading music reading play in any kind of situation guys Paul Schaefer a sponge for our pop music who could just regurgitate anything. And, and uh, I mean, uh, and Steve Jordan, the young drummer who was just so forward and duck was so laid back that that little vibe between them, um, it was just uh, it was sort of amazing, you know, and man, there was a lot of personality con big egos in that band. So there was a lot of uh, uh, hitting back and forth, you know, I, we used to crack up that, uh, Alan and, and Cropper were missing each other's sense of humor all the time, you know, and and uh, one night Alan, uh, during the course of the 
it was probably before the first tour or something. We, maybe we were in New York rehearsing, but he decided that, that we should all go to uh, this very upscale uh, Italian restaurant on the east side. And so Cropper shows up, and Cropper's wearing a uh, uh, gray flannel pants and uh, a blue blazer with a blue shirt and a red rep tie, you know, one of those, I mean, typical preppy outfit. And Alan shows up in exactly the same outfit, you know, and and I was just ribbing him like crazy, you know. I it's the the good old boy and the New York Jew are exactly the same. <laughs> that's, <laughs> great. The same that's great. Fantastic. And and Lou, that first song, was that Soul Man? Was that the first performance? Man, I don't remember what the first one was. I'd have to we have to go to the video. I think it was Soul Man, and I Maybe. do have a one one personal memory of seeing you. I'm almost sixty now. When I was fifteen, I saw you uh, with the full band at Red Rocks in Colorado. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that because last night or two nights ago, when we were in Toronto, uh, Mohammed Khan, who was a champion swash player said uh he happened to email me this is a long story but it's funny uh it, it has to do with red rocks uh i had i was a four wall handball player and i started playing squash i saw the boodles gin tournament on cable tv at the beginning of cable tv in the u.s uh, in new york you know on some alternate station saw sharif khan the world champion uh play squash and win the tournament and i started playing squash because of that so now we're in denver we're in the hotel. The Denver Athletic Club is in the hotel. We go down, Steve Jordan and I, and there's a poster of Sharif Khan. And I say to Steve, if you ever get a chance to see this guy play, he's a world champion. It's unbelievable. We turn around, and there he is standing in front of us. So we start talking. We tell him we're with the Blues Brothers. He says he's got tickets to the concert with all of his cousins, and and they're all squash players. And... Uh, Aziz Ghul, Mohammed Khan, and Sharif, and his sister Yasmin. And so I said, do you want to come backstage and meet Belushi and, and Ackroyd? And they said, yeah. And Sharif says, you you want to take a squash lesson? And I said, yeah, you know, from the world champ. So the next night or that night, they come to the gig. And when they walk in uh, and I go to introduce them to Belushi, you know, they're they're all Pakistanis. So their, fa their father was from the Khyber Pass. He had been a ball boy for a British uh, officer's squash club in, on the garrison. That's where he learned to play. He had been world champion six times after he was in his 30s. A lot of people think he was the greatest athlete of the 20th century, you know. So they walk up, and Belushi takes one look at him, and, and this is like 1980. And Belushi says, Jesus, looks like a fucking terrorist group. <laughs> That's his opening line. <laughs> oh, boy. And they loved it, you know, and they loved him. And so the next day, Belushi and I take our squash lesson from Sharif. And Sharif afterwards, he says, uh, you know, that guy is a natural athlete. He's already just about Belushi. So that was what happened at that gig in Red Rocks. And do you remember this? Some guy came up on stage to try to grab Belushi and uh, and uh, we had a guy named Smokey, Smokey, what was Smokey's last name? He had been a uh, Secret Service agent for him. Yeah, yeah. He, looked, he was the one who tried to look after Belushi and keep him out of trouble. Yeah, but he, he, grabbed, he grabbed the guy and humped him off the stage, you know. I do remember that. Wow. What a, what a memorable night that was. It was about a three-hour show. It was incredible. Yeah, we we uh, we stretched out. Amazing. So, Lou, you've worked with so many artists, we can't cover them all. Uh, and I want to come back and talk about one more piece of the Blues Brothers movie before we part company. But, you know, going back, you've worked with the Rolling Stones and Stevie Wonder and all the way back to the Four Tops and Tina Turner, so many others. When you lay awake at night, you know, and you sort of rewind on some of those moments what comes to mind what do you remember particularly fondly in in what must be an incredible menu of incredibly fond memories but are there any that really pop to mind that you know mean a little bit more to you well 
you know, one thing, uh, we were actually talking about this the other night with these four young musicians who were in the horn section along with Tom Malone and I. Uh, there are, there are, you realize that how ephemeral it all is uh, and how, um, you can't you can't really remember uh, music so much. You can remember things that happened around the music backstage or um, but uh, I told them uh, we were talking about Tony Bennett and uh, and I was lucky to play on like three different Tony Bennett albums and and a bunch of concerts. And uh, his 90th birthday, big special that they did. I was the first saxophone in the, in the orchestra. And I remember we were doing an orchestral uh, session and uh, the tune was Poor Butterfly. And uh, Lou Soloff and I were uh, were sitting, he was on the end of the trumpet section and I was in the, uh, the woodwinds and saxophones and we were sort of close together. And... Uh, we had this lovely little passage to play on harmony trumpet and alto flute. Uh, There's the two of us in a counter line in the arrangement. And, uh, and poor butterfly, uh, uh, poor butterfly, she whispered low. The last line of the first verse is she whispered low. And then when Tony came back in, he went, he whispered it he sort of whisper sang it and man louis i looked over at louis and both of us had tears coming down our face you know it was so beautiful and so just perfect you know and so you know there are things that you remember and there's things that people remind you of and you can't sum up, summon up anything about him. Uh, I got a call to do uh, an interview about Jaco Pastorius. And so I said, you know, I was a friend of Jaco's, but I wasn't a close friend, but I had some singular moments with him. And uh, I said, so why are you calling me about this? And the guy said, well, we're re-releasing that uh, a two CD set of the concert at, at Lincoln Center, the great famous concert at Lincoln Center. And I said, well, what does that have to do with me? And he says, well, you're in the band. <laughs> and, you know, I don't remember anything about this concert. And I said, could you send me something, uh, uh, some of the uh, recordings, uh, you know? So he he get, sent me a, a few MP3s. And as soon as I listened to the MP3s, I I could tell that I was in the band. I could, I could, I could hear myself. I could hear Alex Foster. Bob Mincer was the soloist and Randy Brecker was the other soloist. I recognized Bargeron. I recognized Lou Soloff's sound in the band. So I knew I was there, but man, I can't remember anything about that concert. And usually something will, something will ring about it. Something that happens backstage or something, you know, like, so yeah, it's funny. Uh, one thing that, um, I I'm I'm full of gratitude uh of the fact that I got to play with all these people and got to hang out with them and you know like the one of the first big concerts I played was at when I was at North Texas State it was probably 1965 and we backed it was a big uh R&B show we backed the Manhattans Stevie Wonder Gladys Knight and the Pips and it was either the Temptations or the Four Tops, I don't remember which, all on the same concert, you know. Hmm. And uh, during that time in Texas, uh, I remember playing for Diana Ross and the Supremes, uh, playing like the Lipizzaner Stallions, uh, <laughs> playing the Fort Worth Rodeo, being in the rodeo band, you know, just such a wide range of... of uh, of gigs and the the great thing is that uh i've always i've spent my whole life in the company of these great great musicians and the laughter we've shared and uh, and the delight in being able to play in all these different situations is something that uh, it's it's a 
it's more than a gift or it's it's profound you know it's uh and and as you know i'm 78 at this point and i'm i'm still playing good and uh still practicing and every time i play it's uh, it's more meaningful in a way now because uh i can see how far along i am on the journey you know and how how long the, the string backwards stretches all those little uh, beads along the way that are on that musical rosary i guess you could call it it's been man i've been super fortunate what what what, what a ride so i, I want to wrap by talking about some of the stuff you're doing now but i can't uh leave without talking about that incredible iconic scene in the blues brothers movie with you and aretha franklin and and mackintosh murphy uh what are your remembrances of that lou and uh, did you ever imagine when you were filming that scene that that and the whole movie, uh, frankly, would stand the test of time and still be, you know, finding new audiences today, you know, well more than 40 years later. Uh, but that scene in particular uh, in that coffee shop with you and Aretha and McIntyre Murphy, that was an incredible, incredible piece of work. Well, that, you know, we rehearsed that. Uh in a big dance studio and we would pre-recorded it so you know my solo is i remember landis when we were recording it he kept urging me to be more frenetic to get play higher to be so that i learned to play that solo uh along with uh with the playback because that that was something that always bothered me in movies when you would see like a saxophone player moving his fingers but you don't hear a saxophone and then he takes the horn down and then you hear the saxophone solo you know and uh, so i i really worked hard at learning to do that then when we got into this to the set that counter was not normal height it had a little where the footstools were were like a foot off the floor so it was chest high and it was also narrow. Uh, and so that dance routine that I had rehearsed uh, all of a sudden felt sort of perilous up there, you know, and, and the stoves and everything right behind me. And, and uh, so that was a little nerve wracking. And then we did it a bunch of times, you know, and, uh, and there's two things about that scene. One is, uh, in fact, somebody told me, a guy up in Canada after the gig told me, he said, you know, when Aretha tells you to go on and get, he said, you had a look on your face. He said that it just cracks me up. And he said, and also, man, he said, you flew up those stairs with your horn. You know, I was thinking about it. And I, I was thinking, I wonder if I could still go as fast up those stairs. And, and then uh, when we filmed the, the, uh, the, dishwashing when i look up and 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 head rip off the hairnet and go in landis and the the one of the cameramen and one sound man and one lighting guy were it was the end of the day they decided to shoot that scene and landis says now lou whatever you do uh you can get angry you can um, slam the dishes around you can even break them you can like be bugged at the, why you're having to do this he said but don't look up and don't say anything and keep washing until i say cut so i start washing dishes Landis says good you know he says you can get a little bit more angry and i'm washing dishes and i'm washing dishes and i break a dish and it it's an absurdly long time you know and finally I I stop and I look up and they have all left a long time ago, apparently. So I'm I'm by myself in the studio and they're at the other end of the studio uh having coffee, you know, and at the you know <laughs> they left me there for like I don't know how long, five minutes, I suppose, washing dishes and and uh, so yeah, that's what I remember about that scene. That I can hear them all laughing at the other end of the studio when I finally realized I was by myself. They got you. They got you. And uh, great stories, Lou. Such a, a incredible joy to hear them from you. Uh, 
And can we talk about some of the stuff you're doing now? I know you're on the road with James Taylor and still busy as ever. Yeah, uh, we had uh, a really lovely tour with James this this summer. And uh, on the break, uh, uh, the Blues Brothers band went to Europe for the first time since the pandemic. And we had a terrific tour. We were in Spain and Italy and great audiences and great gigs. And uh, we ended up playing in Locarno at the film festival in Switzerland. Got to walk the red carpet. And uh, right now I have... Uh, I'm enmeshed in uh, designing uh, the cover, and uh, I have a what's going to be a double CD of uh, big band music. During the pandemic, I wrote 13 new big charts for for big band, uh, and uh, a, a great New York band. We re recorded them out at the studio in New Jersey. We did it live with no headphones, like the old style, and. Uh, uh, I'm really proud of it. It's going to be called Out of the Blue. It's going to be a double CD set. And uh, and so I'm going to put it out myself, I think. And uh, I have a, uh, engaged a promoter in, in Pittsburgh to promote it on the radio. And and, uh, and then I'll try to get it started to work here in New York. And then uh, I have a project that I started right before the pandemic. Uh with uh, Gil Goldstein, the great piano player, and Danny Gottlieb and Mark Egan, the drummer and and bass player that played with uh, Pat Metheny at first. They had a trio in college called The Egg for Egan, Gottlieb, and, and Goldstein. And uh, we, the four of us uh, are, are such a natural fit together. It's so such a delight to play with them that I'm going to do a, a CD with them, and we're going to call it The Egg and I. And uh, and then I wanted to do something with my son and my and my granddaughter, so those are upcoming projects. Absolutely fantastic. Well, Lou, I I can't thank you enough for doing this. It was a joy to hear just a few of your stories. I think you give yourself short shrift. You remember an awful lot, and uh, this was an absolute uh, thrill of a lifetime. I, I can't thank you enough. Well, thank you, brother. Thank you.